This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. Rock. Paper. Pixels. I am Patrick Avioli, and welcome to Rock, Paper, Pixels. This podcast is focused on how our need to communicate has created a new economy. My guest today is a respected creative thought leader, author, designer, speaker, consultant, and trainer on the topics of innovative thinking and creative problem solving. He has over 25 years experience working in the innovation-driven fields of advertising and marketing communications. As a creative director, he was responsible for inspiring and leading teams in generating fresh new ideas on a daily basis for some of the world's leading business organizations. He has co-authored a book called Smart Storming, The Game-Changing Process for Generating Bigger and Better Ideas. Through workshops, speaking engagements, and consulting practice, Smart Storming has shared insights with an international audience of thousands of corporate professionals from companies like Google, Under Armour, NBC Universal, Siemens, Diego, Omnicom Group, E-Network, Telemundo, as well as with graduate students at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He is also a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design, my dream school. We'll get into that later. He also (laughs) served as a member of the Rhode Island School of Design Board of Trustees. And a moment in time we're going to talk about later, too. He's a graduate of Coach University, the world's leading training organization for professional coaches, and most importantly, a graduate of Lawrence High School of 1974, <laughs> where we kind of first met each other in 1972 or three. Uh, please welcome Mitchell Ritchie. Oh. Hey, Mitchell. Hello there. Thank you so much. How, How are you doing? Doing? I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I really do. My pleasure. Uh, today's topic is going to be generating truly creative solutions through smart storming. And I'm really playing right into your wheelhouse, and I want to. Uh, This isn't a gotcha moment. This isn't a kind of a podcast where I'm looking to find anyone wrong. What I'm looking to do here is really to hear different opinions and how you work inside this new space. Uh, You know, one of the things I want you to do in the beginning here is give me a little career path, a little bio on where you started. I know. Uh, but the, the both of the people that listen to this podcast uh, may not know where you came from. I have an audience of two at the moment, I think. No, it's actually really, really growing. It's weird. Uh, and uh, I've had something like 600 views on LinkedIn. For this. So I don't know what's going on. So start me off with a, a short bio and career path, where you are today. And the thing I like to ask guests is, do you have an outside passion project and I think we discussed that the day I almost fell down the street in Manhattan when I met up with you. <laughs> so go on, give me a little bio and career path. Okay well it's been it's been an interesting path uh, you know as you know uh, uh, like you I, I was a creative person all my life so uh, mostly uh, pursuing the traditional arts of, of sketching painting uh, and that. So when I went to RISD, I actually uh, majored in illustration and graduated as an illustration major. Uh, when I got out of uh, college, um, came to New York City and pursued a career as an illustrator and had a pretty good run as an illustrator, uh, illustrating uh, 
articles and advertisements and uh, even a couple of children's books. Wow. And, then, and then interestingly, through, through uh, illustration, I started going around to ad agencies showing my portfolio. And at one agency, uh, the creative director said to me, wow, you're, you could really draw. Do you do storyboards? And of course, I was so naive because at RISD, it's mostly fine arts. I said, what are storyboards? <laughs> so he said, basically, uh, before we shoot a television commercial, we, we do uh, sketches of all the different scenes so we can show it to the client. We put it to dialogue. And my big question was, sure, how much do you, do you pay? And he said something astronomical at the time. It was 50 or $75 a panel. And I said, oh, oh. I said, wow, okay, uh, how many panels? He said, 64. <laughs> and I, I quickly did the math and I thought, wow, I just found a very lucrative business. Wonderful. And, and the best part is he said, I need them in three days. So um, I made a lot of money in a very short time and then he kept giving me work. And then eventually he, he thought it'd be cheaper if I would just be on staff. Sure. offered me that and that's what really got me into advertising I was in the bullpen I was a sketch artist then eventually got opportunities to be an assistant art director an art director then a senior art director and kind of worked my way up through it and I sort of had a natural talent for concepting coming up yes. with uh, original ideas and I had the distinct advantage of being able to draw my ideas which I found that most art directors couldn't do so uh, yeah, so for the next 20 years, believe it or not, I, uh, I was in advertising and worked my way up to, uh, to being a creative director and did that for about 20 years and I loved it, it was, it was great. You know, they call advertising the kindergarten of the business world, so. <laughs> <laughs> great so, line. So, so what, do you, what do you do, Daddy? Uh, you know, I, I, I sit around and come up with, with ideas all day for TV commercials and ads. and Yeah, it just happens to be a kindergarten that generates billions of dollars in revenue. Exactly. It drives exactly. the economy. <laughs> it does. Then um, I eventually left uh, advertising and went out on my own as a consultant and specializing in new business pitches, helping agencies that were pitching big accounts uh, come up with strategies and- oh, What a and segue. Yeah, it just seemed to make sense. I was kind of tired of working for the agencies, so uh, I did that for quite a while. And then my real passion was was creativity, uh, uh, teaching people about creativity, and helping to liberate their fullest creative potential. So I started to design workshops to help uh, people think more creatively, to approach things in new and different ways, and that's kind of what led me down the path to founding Smartstorming. What a natural segue. What a natural path. Thank you. It's pretty cool. I mean, you know, I don't want to go too far back, but, you know, we really knew each other in the 70s in high school. And mm -hmm. Sylvia Schwartz and I think Cardberry, Cardberry whatever. Mm -hmm. And we were, not we, I don't want to speak collectively. You truly were the best in, in the area, in the school. And I was happy to kind of, you know, be a friend of yours and talk. But... Uh, that creative thing, that solving a problem, like it, it's not, ex it's inexhaustible mm -hmm. if that's who you are. The problem is when the road changes and how do you adapt? Anybody can drive a car, 
but not everybody can drive through the Swiss Alps. Right. Doing right. seven days. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know what I'm trying to say? Because yeah. right now, that's the world we're in a little bit. We're yeah. literally in the world where uh, you don't actually know the next turn. The innovation is coming so quickly. And how do you adapt? I used to like to ski. Uh, I love skiing. I have a house at State, and the ski lodge was a mile down the road. It was fantastic. Mm. As I got older, obviously much more dangerous. But the skiing is what I love, that speed of going downhill, seeing these bumps, these turns, these twists. And if your brain really can react quickly, that's the joy of skiing, right? So now today in this world of innovation, those, what do they call them, moguls or whatever they're called, mm -hmm. the bumps on the ski slope, that to me is the speed in which, and the changing slope, uh, the way digital has just shifted everything. And you don't know what's coming up tomorrow. Right. You know, you ever see the commercial for Wubu? The two bike messengers are in the elevator and two ad execs are behind them. And they're like, you on Wubu? Yeah, I'm on Wubu. The ad execs come out of the elevator and they're like, drop every budget. We need to invest in Wubu. And then the, later in the day, they get back on the elevator and the two bike messengers are there and they're like, dude, you still on Wubu? Nah, I dropped Wubu. <laughs> Within the hour, you know what I mean? Yes, yes. That's how this is turning. How do you keep? How do you keep? How do you keep properly innovating strategies for a marketplace that is not David Ogilvy? That mm -hmm. is not a three-quarter copy page and a little picture of a guy with a eye patch. So how do you how do you deal with this much change on a constant basis and trying to be of a, a form of inspiration to creatives? You find it really difficult. Well, you know, it is challenging because it, it, it's changing at, like you say, light speed, right? It, yeah. it, there's, there's nothing, change is the only constant now. And um, I find it's a mixture of, of two things. And, and one is there are certain constants, believe it or not, within yeah. all this change, okay? Yep. So, so, so change uh, is, is, is going to be happening all around you, but I, it's almost like whitewater rafting or, or mm. sailing a boat, right? If you have the basics down, you can go with the currents wherever yeah. they go, and, and you could take advantage of the winds or the currents, or if, if they're leading you in a direction you don't want to go, you, you could tack uh, yeah. in, in another direction. So let, let, me, let me get a little bit more concrete. And, and the first thing is to define what is innovation? Most people that, that we, we teach in our consulting have only a vague idea of what innovation is. They just think it's the new next thing, it's, it, it, it's being ahead of the curve, it's coming up with something no one else has thought about. But really innovation, if, if you, the, the definition we like to use is that it's the, it's the introduction of something new or different that provides greater value or benefit than something that's come before it. That's it, it's, it's a very simple uh, definition. And also it's helpful to know that there are three forms of innovation. There's incremental, which is just making something a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, new, improved, you know, get more for less. Those, those are, those are uh, incremental innovations. The other is um, evolutionary innovation. And you, can see that, and you can see that happening in light bulbs. They went from incandescent to fluorescent yeah. to, uh, now they're diodes. So that, that's evolutionary. 
uh, the leap from propellers to jet engines. Okay. The last category is disruptive. Bingo. And that is, and, that, and that's what everyone tends to think about is, is innovation, right? So, so the Airbnbs, the Ubers, the- Dude, this is exactly good. This is exactly right. what I bring up, good. Okay, so, so what they realize is that if you had a pie chart, disruptive innovation would be a very small wedge. Sure. The largest wedge of innovation is really incremental. Sure. Right? So we tell people, well, we don't know what to do. I said, well, whatever you're doing, can you do it better? Can you provide more value, greater benefit in, in whatever, you know, start there. And then you start to see more opportunities because a lot of, a lot of what, what people are struggling with, with innovation is, is they're trying to hit a home run. They're trying to come mm -hmm. up with the next disruptive thing, which if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. But that's why you have, you know, one Bitcoin, you know, the people that gave up Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now you have lots of imitators of it and, and they're, they're, they're coming up with their, their own things and they're evolving that. But the, you know, one person disrupted by creating that whole um, uh, cryptocurrency concept and, and introduced blockchain and all that. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm diverging. No, but. no, no, no. We're, this is what podcasts are for. We, we kind of have unlimited and we can edit. Mm -hmm. uh, and never going down uh, uh, what you may think is a digression is a bad, unless we start talking about uh, pastrami sandwiches. You right. know, we're still in the same thing. Schumpeter, Joseph Schumpeter's Creative Destruction Economic Theories of the 20s. Uh, I learned of it by watching West Wing, of all things. <laughs> you know, please, Aaron Sorkin, a hero, a hero, a hero. Mm -hmm. uh, Paola Antonelli. We'll talk about John Maida later, mm -hmm. uh, quickly. Uh, these are the these Schumpeter's theories of creative destruction have been around forever, and the last area you talk about, the disruption, has to really be managed. I mean, it's a rodeo. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to let that bull loose, you better make sure you know you weren't a cup. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it can get very, very bad quickly. Yeah. So the first one you talked about was incremental. The second was evolutionary or evolving state mm -hmm. and the disruptive. Not that I don't want to talk about the first two and I'm not going to stay long on this, but disruption is definitely the most volatile. Mm -hmm. And in having your skill set embedded when you go down that, that, that white water uh, and you see, oh my Lord, I've never seen this many rocks before in my life. This is disruption how quickly the brain works and you know creative we used we think uh, just a crazy person maybe a creative to me is a robin williams a creative to me was that television show that he had for a short period of time seeing reworking innovating changing and adapting mm -hmm. that is a tough thing can you actually teach someone to do that or is that innate well I, okay it's it's actually both the very best people do have an innate ability to make new associations and connections really quickly yeah okay so what happens is they can connect dots that other people can't see pattern when, recognition pattern recognition you know when you think about creativity most most people i just want to define that for a second because i think sure. it gives people a reference right uh you know creativity if we eliminate the 
artistic talent part of it. That's what most people think. Uh, uh, I'm not creative because I can't draw, I can't perform, I can't write, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but really creativity in its purest form is really the, uh, the ability to make new associations and connections, uh, to be able to, to solve problems or capitalize on opportunities. And then validate that. And get validation, right, from that. Right, and that's the whole rapid prototyping model that, yeah. that's evolved, is that we got this idea, let's assemble something really quickly, put it out in the world, test it, get feedback on it, and then keep Ooh. evolving and changing it. So that's been, a, that's been really something that's emerged in the last 10, 15 years, wow. this whole rapid prototyping for exactly that reason. It's we have this innovative idea, let's see how it plays in the real world. Because when things go from concept into the real world, there's all kinds of consequences, both you know, positive, and then there's the whole law of unintended consequences. And then you innovate upon that data. Right, and right. You change and work it. Yeah, basically you could, you could look at it in a very simplistic way of, of what's working, keep pushing what's working, mm. right? The things that aren't working, break it down. Why isn't it working? Is it important? Is it you know, uh, integral to the success of this? And if not, move on, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so the, 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 peop, the people that can move the fastest and create the most change, someone like an Elon Musk, let's say, who you know, had this idea for, for electric cars, but he also had ideas for solar panels. He also had this idea for, for space travel, for boring holes and creating highways under. You know, he, he, he's a real disruptor because he's making new associations and connections really quickly and sees the possibility and also has the talent or innate ability to pre-visualize. So he is also the reincarnation of Nikola Tesla, who he named his company after. If you do a little, my, one of the things I teach is the history of design, history of technology and media. And one of the things I love is Nikola Tesla. Mm -hmm. Crazy as crazy could be. Genius. Uh, one sandwich short of a picnic. Right. But everything Musk is doing, it's like he found Tesla's notebooks. Yeah, but he's bringing them to life. But the interesting part, and the reason I bring that up is, you know, he's PayPal mafia, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he made his money yep. off of the simplest means of revenue. In my old neighborhood, we called it VIG. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Today, it's a percentage on a loan, right? Right. Short term loan, 3% off of every transaction. <clears throat> One of the oldest businesses in the world. <coughs> Excuse me, but it's it's amazing in what he's doing. Hyperloop, oh my lord! Yeah, Hyperloop, Tesla cars, all these things are just genius, absolute genius. And, and part and and a big part of his genius is not only to um, <clears throat> me, not only seeing the potential, but also being able to engage people's imagination. Yes, you know, where they see it and want to join him so he can they attract, yeah, yeah they, they're attracted to it. So that's also a big part of innovation that very few people speak about is the real true leaders in innovation are the ones that can share a vision and have people join it, support it in, in, in many different ways and, mm -hmm. and to quickly take it from concept to prototype to, to reality, so. These creatives, these innovators, these disruptors, have been so challenged so many times over the years because they don't want them to stop. 
the status quo. Right. When Tesla's, when, excuse me, when you know, Tesla, SpaceX, Musk, when his stuff was blowing up, one of the first things I wrote years ago was, this is sabotage. And everybody else says, okay, paranoid Pat. What came out last week from Elon himself? People have been sabotaging our core data and algorithms, and he finally released it. Here it is, and now he's suing him. It's such a pattern to get back to where we started mm -hmm. that you got to go, it, it has to be happening. It has to be happening. Uh, innovation will always be challenged, whether it's in the marketplace or in the boardroom, in the mm -hmm. conference room, it will always be challenged. We get back to the white water rafting. How do you avoid the rocks? <laughs> well, you uh, you get better at spotting the signs of the rocks before they before they before they come. So if you're if you're going down the river and all of a sudden you start to see unusual patterns in the water, yeah, patterns. You know, if you're creative, right? You patterns are everything, right? You see patterns, so all of a sudden you see you see strange things ahead, and you if you're experienced, you say, "There's yeah. rock where there's that pattern." Yes. There's rocks. <laughs> So then you try and steer to areas that don't have that. Now you can't always avoid the rocks, but you know sometimes you you have to go over a bunch of rocks to uh, <laughs> to get. When you go back to the training that you teach, right? Not necessarily spotting the rocks because that's innate, right? But as you see them, the instinct should be okay. What did I learn from smart storming to reconfigure without losing months of innovation? What do I look at as the kind of, I don't want to say bolt-ons, but something I can latch on to now and re-steer. I, uh, I never sailed. I think it was a ballast issue. No one ever invited me. Uh, but I, <laughs> I never sailed, but I know you did, right? Uh, very little. My partner yes. actually does a lot of sailing. Okay, so, so you understand those 85 pulleys, yeah. right? And that's what you're alluding to here with the change. As you're sailing through these waters, you need to know which one you tighten, which one you loosen. And that's based on your training. It's first based on intelligence, experience, mm -hmm. because the waters are always going to change. Mm -hmm. Right? So how, I don't want to get into how far you teach into that, but how much of your teaching is based on swift change? For the, well, for the group? well, again, a lot of, a lot of what we teach are, are principles that, that, uh, that are applicable at all, in any situation, right? So things like questioning assumptions, right, is, yeah. is, a, is a very big thing that we teach because you may have assumptions about the way the river should look or, or the way it's always looked in the past and stuff like that. But when you start to run into things that are new, anomalies and things like that, you have to start fundamentally questioning, you know, what is it that, that you are believing because you're operating under this belief. So we teach a methodology for, for questioning assumptions and not just accepting things blindly or you have hair, you know, hearsay or something like that. Uh, the other thing is, is, is how to, uh, to think in new and different ways, right? So in other words, in, other words um, in what other ways could we navigate the river? Then you, you go as far as horrible metaphor analogy here is uh, do you go as far as saying to them all right listen we're going to go on shore right now we're going to get out of the river and walk the next mile yep and carry the carry the canoe 
because this is not going to work for us. Well, that's part of, that's part of questioning the assumptions. The assumption is, do we have to stay in the river? See what I mean? Like, you might say, like, you know what? All I see for the next, you know, mile or two are rocks, rocks <laughs> every six inches. This so, ain't going to work. <laughs> right. So, but if you're assuming you have to stay in the river, right, then you'll, you'll stay there and you'll get battered and whatever. Or somebody can just say, do we have to stay in the river? Is it, can we take the boats out? Can we walk alongside the river until yeah. it, see, so that's, that's. And I think that, yeah, it's not bad. That actually worked. Uh, and the question, <laughs> I know, I'm, you know, I guess 30 years of teaching, somehow it goes right. And obviously what you've been doing. Yeah. So my thing here is I think we have to find what is actually important. Uh, is the boat, the canoe important or going through the river important? What are we, are, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Well, somebody once said to me very wisely, it says, have the goal in mind, the vision in mind, right. right? But either give up the need for it to occur a certain way or be infinitely flexible in how you get to that. Because mm -hmm. very few paths from concept to, you know, to, to, to vision, you know, you have you. A, think of a vision as your North Star, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's what you, you're moving towards, okay? And your, mission, and your mission is, what am I gonna do every single day to achieve that vision, right? Okay, so to your point, right? The goal is to get to whatever is downstream. Right. If we keep using this metaphor, right? Well, so- Makes so, sense. Right, but having a flexible mind and saying, well, part of, the, part of it, we're gonna sail down the river, part of it, we're gonna walk along yes. the shore. Yes. You know what? We may have to dismantle our, our boat completely and turn it into a, a, a wagon yeah and, and you know go so there's 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 you have to be infinitely adaptable yeah and most people are wired to not uh, be to not be because they want to know what what to do how what they should do how it should work what's what's expected of me now let me ask you a question first of all malcolm x comes to mind i think just generally but in that statement by whatever means necessary was consistently his answer mm -hmm. but in saying that do you think it's i was doing one of these with someone i forget who it was but their point was this isn't a job like our field I don't see it as, you know, punch in, punch out, I'm out. Right. If you're in this field, I was talking with one of my best friends. That's who it was, Phil Simone. Phil was my college roommate, but he was also the design director for People Magazine for over a decade. Amazing level this gentleman matched. And we were talking about another friend, and the friend said something like, well, I don't understand, it's just a job. And Phil and I were like, no. It's what we do. Mm -hmm. And I think it's different for us. I think it's different for creatives. So to kind of make those turns, with some people, they're like, I, I just want to get the boat downstream. And we're like, no, 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 no. I want my idea to be heard across the globe. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, yeah. And so we don't think about just the boat downstream. We don't think about making those simple markers that we want we do look at the North Star mm -hmm. and we do say again, like Malcolm, by whatever means necessary. And that's a tough way to, that I think when you get that in a group, Mitchell, I know when I get that in a class, mm -hmm. a student or a, in a client in your case, 
that's when you really start to tap dance. Yep. That's when you hear the music turned up just right. <laughs> like, Listen, you guys go sit down. I'm going to go dance with this person for the next hour and a half. That yeah. must, must be a little crazy. Like, ha, can you ever ignore the group like that? That must be, man, oh, man. That's like Unchan Andalou when they're dragging the piano and the dead donkey through the room. <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 what's great about the, what you're talking <laughs> about is when you get a group that, that embraces the unknown, mm. right? I tend to think of, of, of navigating in the unknown as, yeah. as, a, as a good metaphor for this because so mm. much of innovation is happening on the cutting edge of what's mm. known and not known. Or as we say to clients all the time, it's, it's you operate on what you know and what you don't know and have to figure out really, really quickly. Yeah. And a lot of people are uncomfortable there. Some people realize that that's the price you have to pay to achieve that vision, to move towards that vision and not to keep harping on Elon Musk, but I think he's very good at not getting stopped yeah. and, and using everything as a learning lesson yep. to keep going. Because the goal is to keep going, not to get stopped. So it's, it's when, you, when you have a group of like-minded people that see a, a, a greater vision or something yeah. that they want to achieve in the world, and they see all this unknown in front of them, they are gung-ho to do whatever it takes to learn whatever lessons, to rapidly prototype an infinite number of times to achieve whatever is necessary to attain that goal. And I don't know if you, you saw Elon Musk posted on, um, on Instagram a, uh, a compilation of all the failings of his Falcon rocket. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yes, and, uh, the, and explosions, the explosions. The explosions. And, and what it was yeah. is I, I forgot that there were 10 or 15 different explosions. Yeah. And he set it to music. And really, really, what it was, <laughs> you know, you'd see some blew up on takeoff, some landed and then fell over, other right. ones ran out of uh, propellant and crashed. Right. And he just labeled it just as it is. There was no story, no apologies. But from each one of those, you realize they learned. We need to have more propellant. We, <laughs> we, we need to fix the gyrator in here. We have, so they, they were like ticking off, uh, um, what do they call that when you buy a house and you have the punch list, right? Punch list, yeah. Right. So all the things that didn't quite work became a punch list for them. It, it, it wasn't about failure and embarrassment. It was really about learning. But that also goes back to cash money. Hmm. It goes back to resources in order to take those steps. Right. You know, that's, I'm never going to not say that. Right. You know what I mean? I was with a startup uh, 25 years ago in Bohemia in a warehouse, four of my students and me and print guys, print guys funded it that quickly ended. Uh, and that's what we lived on. It was Janice, Richie, Joe, and Larry. Larry is now the CTO or whatever, amazing, of iMirage. Janice works for a Motorola spinoff, Zebra Technologies. Rich has had his own business for that many years. Joe is still inside the print world. But what we did in those 18 months was what kind of a little bit what you're talking about here. To this day, Janice will say to me, it wasn't really a job, but Janice will say to me, that was the best job I ever had. Wow. And, and so will Larry, and so will Richie, and I don't know if Joe will, but they'll be like, if I speak to Rich, 
20 years in his own company, he always goes like, what were we doing? We generated close to $700,000 of revenue in those 18 months. And the owners, the funding people, not enough money. <laughs> How many startups do you know were five years pre-revenue, pre right? Right. So I'm saying what you're talking about there, I really have personally experienced that. And it's in my second book. I talk about those days. But that is a rarity and not a common group of people who come together, right? Right. And I, I would imagine somebody like Tess Musk and his group, that must be like happy days to hear again sometimes, huh? Yeah. It's got to be an amazing thing. I, I want to kind of segue for two seconds here. I hope I'm not cutting you off. No, no. Let's All right, here we quickly. Because we've been talking for over a half an hour, just so you know. Uh, the little clip outs I sent you were Sir John Hegarty. He complains how creativity is receding from the world of marketing as it becomes data-driven, how marketing has forgotten to engage with people's imagination and soul, and how digital technology hasn't created the wealth it promised to. In counter to that, uh, another article in Forbes says, marketing creativity is not dead, but it needs to be reinvented. The most interesting invention at Con this week were not ads, but new ways to reach consumers without making them pause in front of a screen. They included a playful machine devised by J. Walter Thompson, one of the oldest, if not the editors yeah. in the world, <laughs> which dispenses free KitKat bars to travelers in Sao Paulo airport if their flights are delayed. I am in love with that campaign. I, I just want to, I don't know what you have to validate that with. But those two, those two statements are a little counter. The last one I like more, and that's innovation attached to new solutions mm -hmm. and stepping outside of the realm that we grew up in. Yeah. We grew up in the big idea, not that that isn't, the big idea, the uh, big ad, and then if it has legs, we run with that idea for the next got milk, 25 years. Well, you know, in the marketing realm, you, you, you've raised uh, a, a, a very fundamental uh, distinction. In the old days, and I'm doing air quotes here, okay, and, and pretty much- well, We were young. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say in the pre-digital to early digital age, um, most, most, we'll use marketing, right? Most, if you came up with a big, big idea, like Got Milk or, or uh, you know, if I'd like to buy the world of Coke, you remember that? Yeah. Um, basically, that idea could last indefinitely and it could be spun out uh, in, in, in gazillions of different ways. And if I talk about that, it could be in ads, billboards, TV commercials, yeah. okay? And, that, and the message was the medium, right? So yeah. people got it, it was anthemic, it was anthemic. People, uh, you know, took it to heart, and that's what sold the brand. Yep. Now, these days, uh, <laughs> it, you don't you don't need a big idea every few years. You need a big idea almost every, every month. Every every, every month. Absolutely. Right. Because um, brand loyalty is something that is very tenuous these days. You yeah. can have. You could have it today, have some kind of PR debacle, and you know what? Um, Your brand is, is tainted. And you know, Twitter is to me, if you've ever watched birds swarm, like the videotapes of 
watching flocks of birds go through the air. Dip. The most perfectly named product in the world is Twitter. Mm-hmm. When If you see how those birds move, those swarms, how they go from spot, 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 that is the market today. Mm-hmm. There is no market loyalty. There's almost no brand loyalty. Mm-hmm. It is whoever chirped last, we're going with them. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, the internet, it's, it's interesting. Two things converged, uh, technology and the internet converged yeah. and changed the fundamental dynamic of, and we, we talk about this in our training. It's, it's pretty of interesting. mankind. <laughs> okay. So, so what happened? What happened is it used to be in the old days, the big companies, right? The car companies, uh, the beverage companies, they gave you a very limited range of products and mm-hmm. said, do you want it in blue, red, black, or green? Right. And they would say, here it is, Mr. and Mrs. Consumer, come take it, just choose the one you want. And that was it. That's all they had to do. Henry Ford, you can have it in any color you want as long as it's black. Right, (laughs) right. But now what's happened is mostly through the technology and the internet is now consumers for the first time have access to so much information. They have uh, access to competitive information. So if they want to buy a car, they will research the type of car and, and then they'll start to read peer reviews about the car. They'll, they'll look at the, the repair history. Uh, so all this information for the first time has really empowered them. And it's a global marketplace now. So I don't have to go to a, to a certain car dealership to get wow. the car. I could get, get it at 25 different places. Now they deliver the car. And now they deliver the car. It, yeah. Right. So what's happened is there's been this power shift from the companies, from the brands to the consumer. Yep. And now the consumer has all the power. So yep. what's happening is part of the, the, the schizophrenia that's happening in the market, <laughs> the market world right now is, is, is marketers and brands are trying to anticipate what they want, what consumers want, what are the best ways to deliver that. They, they now have more channels that they can Absolutely. help pump out content to and and you know that a big mistake a lot of marketers make is is they go for impressions over quality of the of the recipient's experience exactly ux ux baby ux baby and it's also it's also if you're going to tap me on the shoulder symbolically and and get in my face you better do it in a way that has something in it for me not just mentioning your brand and, and, and a sale or something going on Ooh, there. Where's the value added? Exactly. Exactly. What's the benefit? What's in it for me? Not, <laughs> not, 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 yes, you have the budget to contact me uh, while I'm sitting in the dentist's office because you know, you're tracking me on GPS and, and you want to sell me toothpaste at that moment. <laughs> I mean, just because you can do it, you got to do it in a way that is, is, is somehow yeah. rewarding to me. So. It's very, very true, Mitchell. It's very true. Uh, we could go on for days, and we've already been talking 45 minutes. I want to touch on one other quick thing. Sure. And then uh, I just want to do a little wrap-up. I could talk to you for hours, and that must scare you to the bone. Not at all. It's a pleasure. <laughs> it's a pleasure, always, always. I actually have a connection to you and, I think, your phone number. That will be changed by the end of today, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> No longer in service. That's right. uh, anyhow, I do want to hit on something that is right over your left shoulder. 
Ah. Ah, see? Knowing where we are. Knowing where we are, Mitchell. I am Kaiser Sose. I am Kevin Spacey in the uh, police captain's office there. (laughs) I'm about to make up a story by what I see over your shoulder. Uh, I know that you are on the board at RISD. Uh, I never uh, even heard of RISD until you went to it. I lived, uh, you know, a sheltered life in Inwood. One of the first things that comes to mind is how art has always been held up higher than design. Mm -hmm. It truly has. It's been considered high art, and low art is where design starts. Here is my answer to that, and I teach this in my History of Visual Communications class. Quick definition of art, something that evokes an emotional response. Very simple, but design, anything with a purpose. Now, here comes pretzel logic. I think it's good logic. Many people challenge me. Uh, Well, doesn't art have a purpose? Yes, it evokes an emotional response. Well, then if design is anything with a purpose, how is art not a subset of design? (laughs) So I've always been amazed that it was called the Rhode Island School of Design, 1888, 1880s. But I don't think that name changed. I don't know the history. Uh, my heroes are, besides you, of course, Paolo Antonelli, my current day heroes. Uh, Paolo Antonelli, uh, Aaron Sorkin, mm-hmm. currently Stephen Colbert, John Stewart, of course, brilliance, uh, David Letterman, and... Dr. John Maida, and I'm going to touch on him briefly. He was a, he is beyond accomplished from his days at MIT with Negroponte, who was one of my other heroes I didn't mention. Oh yeah, he was, he was a pioneer. Well, those are the guys with the arrows in your back, in their back. Negroponte's being digital validated everything I was trying to teach. Mm-hmm. And a guy I was working with in that startup, I was, you know, just saying all these things. And then the book came out in 95 and I'm reading it going, shnikes. And I gave it to this guy who's going to be on next week on the show. And he goes, wow, everything you've been talking about is in this book. And I go, okay. And then Maida takes over for Negroponte. Mm-hmm. And then Maida gets in the biennial. And then Maida starts showing how he's creating all of this with PostScript not with Photoshop, with PostScript. And now he's merging technology and the beauty of aesthetics. And he has history back the other way towards pure aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And he has history of just pure brilliance with technology. Mm -hmm. I don't actually love technology. I don't actually love coding. But I am, uh, Jobs and many people have been credited as saying, uh, coding should be taught in grade school. Mm-hmm. And everybody thinks, oh, wow, my kids are going to be a programmer. They don't read the second part of the sentence because it teaches you how to think critically. Right. So when I look at somebody like Meta, I realize, you know, yes, he's a coder, he's a technologist, but he's a critical thinker at the highest level. And that's what you do. That's what you try and teach. I think you try and teach, as we've been saying all day long, all, all episode here long is the critical thinking when you're in whatever environment you're in. Mm-hmm. Maybe I think was trying to bring that to RISD. 
six years in and he's gone. And I called you or got in touch with you some way. And I said, dude, whoever said yes, my biggest, one of my biggest heroes right here. His tenure was short. He's had uh, interviews on this. And I don't want to put anything on you and say, what do you think the problem was? I don't want to go there with it. But uh, he went on to Kleiner Perkins. He went on to Automatique. I'm like a stalker at this point. Uh, but that brilliance is going to change our economy. And not being there at a level of helping young people see it was the only part that was upsetting to me. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's a little bit of a loss losing somebody like that for young people? I think so. I, 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 him leaving, <clears throat> pardon me, when, let me just backtrack. Uh, yeah, I don't want you to get too deep in the weeds. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I just want to give you a perspective that I think sure. would be helpful with, with John Maeda. The thing that I loved about John Maeda, and, and uh, he once told me a story, uh, we were at dinner, now I hate you more, but go ahead. Okay. Well, we're, we're at, we're at a, a trustee dinner and he sat there and, and we, we, we actually have things in common. My parents owned a bakery. Mm-hmm. His parents owned a tofu store. Yes. yes. Okay. So we both grew up working in the family business. And also and, the sense of retail whole consumer goods. Well, it's, you know, it's working with your hands. Yeah. Things, things make sense. You know, you're, you're, you're making something that you're selling that, that yeah. you're selling and you interact with people. So yes. there, there's kind of a full loopness around it. It's not like kids that grew up never working for a dollar. Yeah. And, sure. Okay. So anyway, so, so he had that, that, that sensibility. The other thing is uh, one of the things I mentioned is I said, well, I always knew I was creative and I, I was an artist. I was always drawing. So I, I want to go to RISD. And he said, an artist, <laughs> no, no, you have to go be a doctor. So this is a long way of, of saying that in his family, he said the two schools I wanted to, you know, that, that were sort of the yin and yang for him. One was RISD and one was MIT. Yeah, there you go, bingo. So, so of course he went to MIT for, you know, for probably cultural reasons, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, but he found the media lab and was able to indulge that creative side mm-hmm. of him. Okay, so in a lot of ways, and the reason I'm telling you this is because when he came to RISD, RISD was still what I call a hand on paper sure. type of thing. Things, it, 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 by the way, uh, the name School of Design, it was basically started as a trade school. Absolutely. For all the industry that was in Providence. Absolutely. So it's all about training uh, craftspeople and, sure. and, uh, to be able to, to, to do things at a very high level. From my house to Bauhaus. Right. So John, when he came to RISD, realized that uh, it had this very steep culture with 100 plus years of, 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 of really traditional art. And also it was very quickly, like the rest of the world, mm. you know, careening into the future where everything is digital Screaming. and data. <laughs> right. And, and I think his big challenge was introducing the concept of technology and design and, and digital design into a culture oh my God. that- It was that, on a spin cycle. It was so chaotic, but not unlike many times of innovation, right? Yeah. Uh, well, when, I, think, I think what it was is that he was, he was uh, very much an agent of change. Mm-hmm. Yes. In, a, in an academic environment 
that was not, uh, at least in the academic levels, not the administrative levels, they did not feel the pressure no. to evolve. Now, from a, from a trustee perspective, don't forget, uh, the, the, uh, the, the business of, of the Rhode Island School of Design, like any, any college or institution, is you have competitors. Yep. So you, you have Carnegie Mellon, you have yeah. uh, all the schools in New the York, schools. Parsons, <laughs> you know, the ones, that, the ones that aren't an incubator for pure creativity, the ones right. that are more grounded in the business world, they're teaching integrative, oh I, my God. It, I just call it integrative art and technology. Whatever, yeah. Carnegie Mellon is like going mental on this. Yeah, and, and uh, the California schools are really- Oh my God. You know, they're all, they're all steeped in this. RISD is really kind of a unique outlier yeah. uh, for good and for bad. You know, the, yeah, good, yeah. Part, the good part is yeah. I think the conceptual thinking of, I, the one thing when people say, what did you learn at RISD that was most valuable? I would say it was how to be a creative thinker, a creative yeah. problem solver, a universal creative problem yeah. solver. I'm with whereas, you on that. Whereas really in other you. schools, it's more about, giving you the skills you need to go into the business world. Yeah, it, yeah, becomes, we, uh, it becomes a cabaret. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. The song, right? It's, it's you know, a dollar bucket. You know, money makes the world go round. Right. I understand that. And I do, listen, Mitchell, it's all about balance. It's all about moderation. Yep. And anytime you swing too far in any one direction, you have a problem. Especially right. if you don't have a yang to mm -hmm. Especially if there's not something that complements it. Uh, I just adore Dr. Mater, and that becomes stalker. Uh, if you say John to me again that casually, I'm going to probably come over there and hurt you. Off <laughs> of the lines like, I was having dinner with John, and I'm like, oh, God, I hated him in high school. I hate him again. No, um, no, no. no. See, the thing, the thing, yeah. what's, what's interesting is, is I do believe John was brought in. Again, with the John. <laughs> Dr. Mater. I think Dr. Mater was brought in at the right time. Yes. Because the, the need for yes. change is there. But I think it was much more of a long game. It was and a sacrifice. Why? Well, well let, let me put well, it in. Yeah. No, no. I think what it was is that he was introducing technology and new ways of thinking. And also he was acting in, in, a, in a really innovative way. He would co-mingle with students all the time. Yeah. He, would be, he would be sitting there having lunch and dinner with them in the refectory and, and, and really connecting with them. And bringing all kinds of technology in and on some level that was really innovative and new and the antithesis of academia yeah. and, and right right <laughs> he's less of a figurehead and he's right he's more in the soup as you would say yes, and, he's not, and he's, loving it and loving he it. doesn't have the desk because he's the teacher he has the desk because he has the most to say correct he correct. has he has the knowledge he has the fountainhead not to go Ayn Rand on us but he actually has the, the, the knowledge to dispense. So it was a natural evolution for them to listen to him. Right. Whereas in many other situations like this, it's because they gave you the big desk. So he was an orator and a, well, a philosopher, maybe more very, than an orator. Very, very thoughtful. And I think if it was a long game, yeah. it, it could have worked. It could have worked out, but... When, you're, when, you, when you have an institution as steeped in the classics uh, as RISD is, I think the kind of change he wanted to bring to it may be a 10-year 
15-year plan. They will get there. I do want to go a little bit here. Uh, I want to reintroduce you, and I'm going to be in, I'm going to be editing this in mm -hmm. periodically because I like to do it at least every 20 minutes. But it was too much talking. Jesus, ah. uh, which is wonderful. My guest today is Mitchell Ritchie, a respected creative thought leader, author, designer, speaker, consultant, and trainer on the topics of innovative thinking and creative problem solving. He has over 25 years of experience working in the innovation-driven fields of advertising and marketing communications. Mitchell, at first I want to thank you for taking the time to do this. I'm going to try and go through this part really quickly. My little sign-off that I've come up with is pencils down what did we learn today and a list of what we learned so far is innovation needs to keep going regardless of change the core that you have and as you said before the only constant is change and that statement's been throughout culture for centuries but no truer than today uh, you've given us how your smart storming process works you talked about how possibly using data to be the best creative you can be and how being selective with the data and not letting it drive you, but learning how to make it a tool of what your absolute goal is. Getting to the North Star uh, has been the goal. And in my one of my books, I talk about how uh, the way you make a compass is you take a simple piece of metal, rub it with silk, Put it on a leaf in water and the goal of that is to always point north true north and you didn't read that and I didn't tell you that before we started talking and no compass no future and that's my belief with these a lot of companies today and it's a little crazy we've always been a little mishpoka and I think that has to do with being intelligent people and I, I appreciate that so here's my question your book title and availability, where is it? <laughs> well, our book is called Smart Storming. We name everything Smart Storming. It's a joke. <laughs> like George Foreman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Smart Storming, our book is, is, we try to write the most comprehensive brainstorm leadership manual ever made by mankind well, that's that's, how's that for a goal yes. and uh it'll teach you everything you need to have to had a plan structure and lead a, a brainstorming session it provides right. 20 different ideation uh techniques and tools uh for for people and there's also a chapter on solo smart storming when you need to come up with ideas by yourself so it's available on our website at a discount uh, at smartstorming.com it's also available on amazon and in barnes and noble so mm -hmm. And your uh, website is smartstorming.com. I'm not going to give out your email because that could cause trouble. You are on LinkedIn. Yep. Okay. And uh, at Mitchell Rigi, uh, R-I-G-I-E. And uh, your Twitter is smartstorming. Correct. Smartstorming. Okay. Uh, I, I really, uh, and Facebook, of course, I'm going to say smartstorming just one more time till I mumble it in my sleep tonight. Uh, <laughs> I, I do, Mitchell, you gave me over an hour. I really want to thank you for doing that. Uh, I appreciate your time. It has been a blast. Just a mere 44 years. Uh, that's all that's been really, we've had five conversations in 44 years. We, you know, we like to be selective. When we that's, talk. that's right. We don't want to burn it out. Right? Burn it. Over, over, use it. 
every decade we talk for an hour. <laughs> I'm done. Uh, you really? Got more? Yeah, I don't think so. Jesus, that was a killer getting through that. <laughs> Another nine years and 364 days until we speak again. Anywho, I really cannot thank you enough. Best of luck with everything. Thank uh, you. My pleasure. It's, uh, I, I don't want to sound idiotic. I uh, can't help it, but uh, I'm really very happy to count you as a friend and acquaintance. I tell a lot of my guests and the people I pick to do this uh, are pretty amazing people. And the, the one who comes after them looks and goes, how the hell did you get that person? When I told my dean, an older dean, that I'm very friendly with a trustee from RISD that we could speak to for our you know, College of Arts Communication and Design, I don't think he believed me. And I don't, I, meh, you gotta understand, uh, one time in a presentation, the guy leading the presentation said to the person I was with, you can tell the delivery guy to leave now. And he said, no, 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 no. He built the prototype. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this punum. Yeah. Anyhow. Thank you very much, Mitchell. I truly appreciate everything. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Best of luck. Rock. Paper. Pixels. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit WCWP.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.